Big rigs. Polecats. Flamers. And there's the people eater himself. Coming to count the cost. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. Guess who just got back today? Them Gastown boys that had been away in Mad Max Fury Road one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 44, which begins with Max noticing that they're about to enter a canyon, and it ends with the war rig starting to shake. He rides a blazing saddle. He wears a shining star. His job to offer battle to bad men near and far. It's Alan Sanders from the Wilder Ride Podcast. What in the wide, wide world of Mad Max apocalyptic views are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, thanks for having me back. Welcome back. I hope the three episode a week format isn't throwing you off your game. You're used to putting out five episodes a week. Yeah, no, this is actually kind of uh, an easier week for me. I kind of kicked back, relax. I got the day in in between to kind of take care of some things at home. I I went back, got made fun of by my daughter, so that way I'd be back in the right mindset for being here inside the war rig. (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff. As for the minute at hand when we left on Monday, the war rig was cresting a ridge and going down towards a canyon. And as we go back into the rig, we find once again everybody just sitting very quietly and Furiosa is driving along, and then she looks to the side, and she notices something. She sees something past Max, and I guess Max thinks that she's looking at him, and that causes him to notice that they're about to drive into a canyon, and he tries to grab the steering wheel, which is not something you do. Mm-mm. No, that is not okay. Like, even if you're not in a post-apocalyptic situation, even if you're just driving out for the sake of driving, you don't go and just grab the steering wheel away from the person that's driving. You don't do that. It's very rude. Yeah. I think Max is doing it because he looks at the canyon ahead and he's like, well, that looks like a shooting gallery. If anyone is up on the top of a ridge of a canyon, they've got the high ground. They're going to Obi-Wan ya. <laughs> <laughs> and he probably knows that the Rock Riders control that territory. Well, and also strategically speaking, there may not be a way out or you're certainly stuck when you once you go into a canyon, your your options of where you're going to drive become very limited. Exactly. It's very difficult to turn around in a canyon if the opening there at the bottom is fairly narrow. And the war rig is not something that's going to let you turn on a dime. Like, yeah, we had Furiosa drive around the pit trap earlier in the movie, but she's not going to be banging out any three point turns. No, not at all. More like. 27 point turns <laughs> if she's lucky <laughs> no you know what the best way she would be able is hopefully try to back back completely out of there unless you had a wide enough area to try that maneuver of a, of a rig when you're trailing both a rig and an additional pod behind it very tricky stuff now furiosa aside from having to say hey, max no don't grab the steering wheel she says behind you and max thinks oh sure i'm not gonna fall for that that's the oldest trick in the book like literally you open up the book, trick number one, make the other person turn around by saying there's something behind them. <laughs> but Toast comes in from the back seat and she says, oh, hey, it's the Gastown boys. Mm-hmm. 
And Max, he reaches into the back and he grabs her by the scarf and he pulls her in close. And Toast, of course, has the great comeback of, hey, don't damage the goods. But if Max is going to turn his back on Furiosa, he wants the tiniest modicum of insurance policy against some shenanigans happening. Which I thought was a very clever move on his part. Bringing Toast so close to him and to the gun, if they try anything, there's no chance he's going to miss. No matter what, he's going to hurt her. Yeah. So I think it's a pretty strong insurance policy. Mm -hmm. I would like to address Toast's retort of, hey, don't damage the goods. It really kind of bothered me. And it took me a little while to figure out why, what it was about it that I didn't like. Figured it out. Okay. Back in the vault, when we first learned of the idea of someone has gone missing... There were the thesis statements written on the floor and the walls. And one of those is, we are not things. Mm. And now Toast is using that perspective against Max. And it just seems to be defeating the purpose. I'm willing to bet that she's not using it because she personally believes it. I'm willing to bet she's using it because she's talking to Max and she's speaking to her audience. She is lumping Max in with all of those guys like Immortan Joe, like the people eater, that just see women as objects. And so she's talking down to him, I guess, in language that she thinks he'll understand. Yeah, I'm still not on board. I think that the idea of human beings being human beings and not property is too important to reference yourself as an object Mm. under any circumstances. Alan, what's your thought on it? I'm kind of with you, Rick, to an extent that she's trying to use the language that would maybe trigger something in him. Like, that's a phrase he would know that that's how Immortan Joe treats the women. We're his women. You damage his goods. Like, maybe that's going to stop him from maybe hurting them. I don't know why she thinks he's going to be afraid of Immortan Joe at this point after what they've done. But it's almost that thing of like, hey, don't damage the goods, you know, like. You know, you're just like every other male here. I'm going to treat you like you. That's the only thing, you know, that's the only way I can talk to you. So you understand what I'm talking about. I definitely see where you're coming from, though, Julia, because as you said, one of the main reasons they left the vault is because they didn't want to be seen as material possessions. Did you know that when they wrote the script out, they actually brought Eve Ensler in to kind of make sure that the female characters popped a little bit? She's the one who wrote the vagina monologues. I was unaware of that. Yeah. They consulted her to make sure that they would enhance these female characters to be, you know, something more than just eye candy, something more than your typical stock females in distress. I think it's a bad line. I think that it was bad that Toast said it. And, well, I think she made a mistake on this line. I looked up an interview that Time Magazine did with Eve Ensler, and they asked her, how did you get involved with this? And... She mentions, Eve Ensler says, that George Miller heard her give a talk. I don't know where it was, but he invited her to come out to Namibia and work with the actresses who were playing the wives. And basically, he wanted to have her work with them to give them a perspective of women who had been particularly victims of violence or lived in war-torn war zones and... and Eve Ensler said that when she initially looked at the script, she was actually pretty impressed that the movie tackled so many of those things head on. So it doesn't surprise me at all that she came in and was so involved with the process. No, I think it's awesome. Being a dad of four girls, first of all, you know, I just raised them. You're going to earn whatever you want to do in life. 
There's always going to be challenges. There's always going to be things in your way. There's always going to be preconceived notions of what you can and can't do, but I'm not going to let you play victim. I'm going to raise my girls to be like, you're strong, you're powerful. You can do what you want as long as you set your mind to it and work hard, whether that's sports, whether it's academics, whether it's the business world. And if I had sons, I would have raised them the exact same way. I like the idea that the women in this movie are strong. They are trying to take charge of their lives. They don't want to be property. And I love the feminist message underneath the entirety of Fury Road. So I guess the one advantage of Toast being pulled forward like this is the fact that it gives space in the backseat for Angherid and Capable to move along the backseat and peer out the side window. Blocking-wise, it works. And Julia, I know you love callbacks to the earlier movies, and I feel like there is one with the tools that Capable and Angherid are using to peer out the window. Yeah, we get that fantastic circular viewpoint. What I really love about it is that back in Road Warrior, it was very manufactured. Mm -hmm. It looked like a piece of cardboard put in front of the camera lens to make it round instead of square. Very primitive movie making, which worked at the time, certainly, and it would work now. But they have really upped their game by you actually, in the ring around the edges, you actually get to see bits of the different depths of the binoculars. I like how you've got Angherid and you've got Capable. Capable has the binoculars, Angherid has the spyglass, and we don't have the situation where Capable puts down the binoculars, sees that Angherid has the spyglass, and then reaches over and takes the spyglass away from her. (laughs) Because... The wives are different than how Max has behaved in the past. Yeah, the wives are actually partners in all of this. Yeah. The five of them are a group. And we've spoken about this before. We don't know what their dynamic is. But right now, they are a unit. They are working together. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Max doesn't work with anybody. He sees something he wants, he takes it. So they're not behaving like that. Right. I do like, especially in the spyglass you get a sense of the reflection of the vehicles approaching from the outside of the glass before we go in and look at it from a POV. Mm. And I don't know if that's just, we got lucky and that she's filming the the people who are literally filming them, but it does look really cool that you see just this little sense of like vehicles on the horizon before we go into her POV. And I love from a cinematic perspective that with each little shake, we get the camera of these guys come a little bit closer We stop at about second 33 to come to a reestablishing shot of them in the back of the wagon before going back POV. But the fact that the lens goes out of focus, back into focus, and with each little person that she goes to, from the polecats to the flamers, down to the people eater, it gets closer and closer and closer. I love it. So as they're looking out this window, Furiosa calls back from the front seat asking what they see. And as you mentioned, they go one by one and... We start off by mentioning that, okay, the Gastown boys, they've got a big rig. And in the supplemental material that I've read, the big rig is described as a rolling refinery that in the very back of the tanker train that they're pulling, you've got raw crude. And as the material moves forward, it's slowly refined into usable gasoline by the time it reaches the front of the vehicle. I'm not sure how efficient or effective that could be when you're out on the road, but I can definitely see the point of wanting to make sure that you have gasoline and then the ability to make more gasoline just in the off 
chance you come across a working pump in the middle of the desert and can only get crude. <laughs> yeah, way to go all in on your theme. Yeah. <laughs> I had a note that it was a Mercedes-Benz limousine. Hmm. That that's uh, what they used as the main body for his vehicle, at least the top part of his body. It's an old Mercedes-Benz limousine uh, shell for the top of his for his ride. Yep. Which I think is kind of neat because he's trying to come 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 across as the still the well-to-do wearing like the pinstripe suit and almost looking like he's still above all of this shenanigans of being running around in the desert. Yeah, he's definitely the desert fancy boy. Polecats are introduced here, but they really don't make a huge difference until later in the movie. So we'll probably go into them in deeper detail. But from a lore standpoint, the polecats are basically used as lookouts and vertical attack troops when it comes to how they function in the war party. The flamers are pretty self-explanatory. They have flame-based weapons and dress in black, so they're nice and intimidating that way. But as for the people eater himself, he is definitely the fancy boy of the apocalypse. In the supplemental comic that was put out by Vertigo and written by our own friend Mark Sexton there, the story of the people eater is that he is picked up by Morton Joe as he's still rolling around the desert as Colonel Joe Moore. And a nice little detail of that story is that when the people eaters post-apocalyptic RV or something like that is attacked by Joe's forces, the guys that are there attacking with Joe are actually Roop and Charlie from the first movie. And I think that's a nice little Easter egg. But they chase down this fat guy and they drag him before Joe. And Joe's about to kill him when the fat guy is like, hey, I know where there's a lot of water. And so it's the people leader specifically that leads Colonel Joe Moore to the Citadel and then after the Citadel is taken, Joe earns the name of Immorton. And as a way of saying thank you for leading him to this new fortress, when they retake a refinery to the north, Joe gives it to this fat man who becomes the people eater and is its guardian, its king, its mayor, that sort of arrangement. Now, not having access to a lot of the background of the lore like you guys do, Watching the movie, not just the first time, but multiple times to hear that term. And there's the people eater himself. I never know where he gets it. And we never even see him do anything. But where does that come from? Because first of all, it's very ominous to me to call somebody by that name. Like you don't have to give me any other background just as a casual moviegoer. And I'm like, wow. I mean, that's I mean, he's not, you know, like Uncle Buck. That's the people eater. Like, does that mean if you cross him, guess who's going to be barbecue? I'm not sure if it's ever explicitly stated that he does eat people in a literal sense, but I think the fact that he's such a large individual and that he views people as commodities to be consumed, because he is the number cruncher. When it comes to Joe's cadre of friends that he's built up over the years, the people leader is the numbers guy. Right. He's keeping the books. Exactly. I just didn't know where that, because it sounds like, I mean, again, you don't have to, and maybe there isn't anything. It's just, you know, that's not a nickname of somebody you want to cross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now he does wear this thing on his nose. And I don't know if you ever, um, you know, the woman, Anna Coleman lad in world war one, she was the one who was responsible for creating these very lifelike masks and prosthetics that world war one victims could put on their faces. Uh, if they had been gassed, if they had these horrific injuries, mm. they kind of, 
called out to it in in uh, Wonder Woman as well, where the 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 scientist lady she had sort of like that mask to cover her deformities. But I was wondering if you know it's kind of neat that we're going back to the World War One sort of whatever happened to his nose, he's got this real nice decorative piece to help fill in the fact that it it may be rotten away for all we know. And rotten away is the best way to look at it because the supplemental material I found says that he lost his nose to leprosy. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So if he got leprosy, but it only progressed to the point of taking his nose, I have questions then. Does he still have leprosy? Has he been cured of leprosy? If I'm not mistaken, there is a cure now. I know leprosy still exists in the world. This is not as common as it used to be. Is there a cure cure? According to a cursory Googling, leprosy can be cured by a combination of medications, but leprosy is also passed through extensive physical contact with people who have leprosy already. And if he is literally a people eater, he might have contracted leprosy from maybe it was just something he ate. Ah. <laughs> Bit of undigested beef is all that is. Right. <laughs> well, it's a bacteria, isn't it, that you get? Isn't leprosy like something like almost like flesh eating disease? I think so. Did they maybe have to cut it out? Like he came down with it and if hopefully by removing those infected bits before it spreads? Yeah. Perhaps he contracted it on his nose and instead of cutting off his nose to spite his face, he cut off his nose to save his face. Oh, you took my joke. I was going there with that. (laughs) (laughs) Great minds. It's ironic because, you know, maybe he did have to cut off his nose to spite his face. And this is exactly what a Morton Joe is doing with wasting all these resources. (laughs) Well, he wants his women back. So, you know. As we cut back into the rig, we find Capable, and she drops the binoculars, and she has her first line of the movie, coming to count the cost, reflecting the people eater's number-based job in the trifecta here. And so, with the first words, we get to meet our Capable, who is played by Riley Keough. Her top four on IMDb include Fury Road, she was also in 2016's American Honey, She was in 2017's It Comes at Night, and also in 2017, she was in Logan Lucky. So Riley Keough was born on May 29th, 1989 in Santa Monica, California. She's another American wife, along with Zoe Kravitz. She is the daughter of singer-songwriter Lisa Marie Presley and musician Danny Keough. She is the eldest grandchild of singer and actor Elvis Presley and actress and businesswoman Priscilla Presley. She has one brother and two half-sisters from her mother's fourth marriage. So, Kioff made her film debut in 2010's The Runaways, which was based on the 1970s all-girl rock band of the same name. She played the role of Marie, who was the sister of Sherry, who was played by Dakota Fanning. She worked consistently in movies and shorts until she appeared in Mad Max Fury Road, something we mentioned back when we were talking about the Doof Warrior. While she was working on this movie, she became acquainted with stuntman Ben Smith-Peterson, and the two of them started dating... On August 14th, 2014, she announced that they were engaged, and then they were married on February 4th, 2015, in Napa, California. And since then, she's continued acting and has several upcoming projects in post-production. Wow. Well, look at that. Fell in love with a stuntman. Yeah. The fall guy. (laughs) (laughs) Right around second 14 until about second 22, where does the file go? Does it disappear? I didn't notice. If you look at about second 12 to 13, it's sticking way out because he stops to go grab 
the wheel to say, oh, no, we're not, we're not going in there. And then from a second 14 until 22, I don't see it. I've been wondering how the heck it's been staying in. Well, I see when it comes from the behind shot, it is actually, it's a linked into the actual lock itself. There's a lock behind with a little chain. But you see in second 22, when he's not filing, it's sticking pretty obviously out of his head. It's not like it can hide behind his head. So I think for whatever reason, they decided the takes that were best are ones where he didn't have the file actually in place because it's uh, it disappears only to reappear a few seconds later. Yeah, so I'm looking at second 16 right now, and you're absolutely right. It should be sticking out, not completely horizontal, but cockeyed to the side. It should be sticking out the side of his head because we're looking right. at Max straight on. That's a good catch. And then by the time we get to 22, which is a little further shot on this side of Furiosa, it's right back. I mean, and it's sticking. I mean, it's a good five, six inches off of his head. <laughs> so the the file, it's the reappearing, disappearing file. When we get behind the file, you know, when he grabs Toast and brings her closer, you see he's got the tubes. It looks like there's still blood coursing through the tubes. So who's he hooked to? There's a lot of air in that tubes. I think the blood is slowly draining out. I think what stands out to me right around second 23 is that when we switch from behind to Max, the file switches sides. It's no longer sticking out over his left shoulder. Now it's sticking out over his right shoulder because we need to be able to see Furiosa. Yeah, it's a complete continuity shift as well. Yeah, it's a completely different side of the coming into the lock. So, you know, you only get to experience and enjoy these little things when you stop and watch a movie one minute at a time. Exactly. I think we've learned over the last four movies that when it comes to small continuity things, George Miller just isn't terribly interested. <laughs> no. Well, you know, the the blood, the, the tube, that's fine. Maybe it's just residual. It's dry. I don't know why it's still hooked up and got, I don't know. But the file, is, it, was, it just jumped out at me. I, I, I noticed that. It would take three months literally to watch. I think it was over 400 and some hours of footage. So when you have that much footage and you're the editor... You may not have a choice, but just say, you know what? This is the best take. Even if something's wrong, we just got to go with it. Yeah. Going back to Namibia for pickups would be terribly (laughs) expensive. And, you know, I'm a big fan of the Spielberg quote from uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark when they were running all through uh, during the chase scene in uh, Cairo when they were going after Marion. And one of the one of the Spielberg's second unit directors or somebody said, wait a minute. We we can't shoot down this area because that's not where the guy ran. He ran somewhere else. And he, and Spielberg said, if at this point the audience is worried about whether or not we're in the exact same hallway with the exact same decoration, then I've already done something really, really wrong. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of shifting focuses and especially the file, when we've established that the Gastown boys and the people eater are coming, Max turns back from the window and he grabs that file and he starts furiously shaking it again. And they do something interesting here that I really like is as he's shaking that file up and down, the whole rig starts shaking. And for a moment, you have to wonder, okay, is that us sympathizing with Max that he's shaking his own head or is it actually the rig that's shaking? And we have to wait until the shot shifts over to Furiosa to realize that no, everything is legitimately shaking. Yeah, something's something's wrong. Can I ask you a question of your opinion about this? Because obviously this was a film that had multiple Academy Award nominations, taking six total awards, almost all of them for technical or cinematography, makeup, stuff like that. 
Do you have an issue with where they speed up the film to kind of make it look a little faster, a little more frenetic? Does that bother you? Is that okay to you? Well, it's a hallmark of George Miller. Mm -hmm. He's done it in all the four movies. And I get it because you're trying to make it look like they're going a lot faster than they are. So do you think he did that for continuity of his franchise or is it an effect he still likes to use just for because because with a film like this, with all the safety measures, they didn't have to kind of resort to that. But they use it a lot from running in at the very beginning when he's trying to get away from the the war boys to, you know, when he's trying to use this uh, file multiple times when there's a lot of frenetic action, it suddenly speeds up. And then when it slows down, the film literally slows down. It's all George Miller trying to create a feeling in the viewer. The idea that you want to be on edge. You want things to look a little janky. You want anxiety to rise because we're in a post-apocalyptic situation. You want people to feel the same thing that the characters are feeling. And so if that requires speeding up the shot a little bit, you're going to get that desired effect. It's worked in the past. And so you know you, you stick with what you would do. Well, here's the thing. I could, this is one of those things I could argue equally why I hate it as much as why I love it. <laughs> it's like, cause half of me goes, of course it's all disjointed. It's feeling it's to create that sense of frenetic energy. Like things are going faster than you can process. Your head can't keep up with the action. But at the same time, it always feels like that sort of cheap. Well, we couldn't really do the stun as fast as we would like. So to try to fool the audience, we're going to speed up the film. And that's always bothered me even as a kid. And maybe that's it. I'm thinking of all the movies, like the, the really bad TV shows and the stuff that used to do the same thing to make it feel like we're going faster. Well, I don't think George Miller is trying to fool anybody. The way he does it, it's incredibly obvious. He's trying to communicate that frenetic pace. Mm-hmm. But he's not trying to fool us. And sure, everyone coming into a movie is going to come with their own, I guess, cinematic baggage <laughs> might be a good way to word it. And not everything is going to jive with everyone. <laughs> And I think over a career, you develop those little shorthand things. And I think it works for him. Yeah. I like the idea of cinematic baggage. Mm-hmm. I think that's a challenge that every director has to face. There yeah. is so much cinematic history out there now. And even as time goes by, it's just getting more and more and more. And people have these preconceived notions about the way that stories should go or the way characters should act or the way cinematography should look. So when you flout that, you have to do it well or the people will not come with you. Yeah. (laughs) And as time goes by, I think that's a bigger and bigger challenge. Yeah. I think uh, filmmakers definitely had it easier back when (laughs) cinema was in its infancy and you could do things. You could be an Orson Welles and create all of these cinematic frontier pushing moves and everyone would be so impressed and nowadays people look at citizen kane and they're like okay yeah it's it's kind of long it's good but it's kind of long and it's like no 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 no! you gotta look at the things that he did so yeah we're slowly growing in this huge huge industry of cinema but that pretty much brings us back to the minute it's wrapping up with Max looking around as the entire rig is shaking and everyone is super nervous. We're going to put a pin in things for today, but we will be back on Friday because Furiosa is going to realize that there is a problem with the brakes on the fuel pod. Max is going to volunteer to take care of it. And Nux is going to monkey bar his way along the bottom of the tanker. So you have that to look forward to on Friday. 
The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, where you can see what's in our Tee Public store, join our Patreon, or even donate to the show to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 44 of Fury Road. We'll see you next time.